Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 112, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. How some Florida teachers could earn a $15,000 bonus and more states are requiring mental health education. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, why a California principal is calling for complete grading reform. Are you on board with his ideas? Stay tuned. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire, Lissa Pruitt. Lissa, how are you? I am great. It is really the start for you, but let's not talk too much about the start. Let's talk about the summer. Are you recharged? And and we should note, for those who don't listen regularly, you still do a lot of stuff in the summertime. But, yes. <laughs> but still, like, did you find the time to get recharged this summer? Yes, I did. And I think everybody's different. Some people have to keep moving. You know, their personality is one that you got to keep moving. And that's me. If I if I truly just stopped everything, um, I might become depressed. So it's good to keep moving. But it is nice to have um, to come into this school year with fresh eyes and fresh ideas. And I'm ready. Okay, so you're ready. So what's the if there's one thing you could tell us that you're doing different this year than what you did last year? Does anything come to mind? Yes, I am an art teacher, so I teach 700 children a week, um, and those classes just roll back to back to back all day long of second and third graders, and so this year I am incorporating um, kind of like uh, STEM um, into my lessons, so we are going to have centers where they do different things that are not, it's not drawing or painting on paper. It is more of a, a totally different, like where you're building things or you're um, weaving something or mm-hmm. uh, things like that. So we're, so I'm, That's it's cool. taken a lot of work and a lot of collecting of materials, but we're going to have centers that are even things about like how to tie knots, um, just different things like screwing in screws so some of it's more like life skills and some of it is a little more um creative but that's something that i've definitely want really from listening to all of our podcasts all the maker spaces and stuff i just think that that is something that in my classroom it's okay to fit it in the time schedule and it's it's so hard to fit it into a regular ed teacher's classroom we don't spend a lot of time like going over your background on the show or anything so unless someone's like really paying attention but (laughs) you know or they go to our website look at your bio but like you (laughs) you're like what like year 15 plus like we'll just say over (laughs) over 15 years absolutely teaching and you've taught um i know second grade fifth grade Gifted educations. You you have a master's in gifted education. Mm-hmm. You taught math to like a whole bunch of different grades, right? Pre, yeah, pre-algebra and algebra. Yeah, and and now you're back into really what your first love is, which is art. Art. So, which you know but, often got canceled over the years to where you know funding has an art program for the fifth graders and maybe it doesn't. And so, um, so yeah, I would 
move in and out of classrooms. Um, but yeah, so now I'm just teaching second and third grade art um, at a public school here, and it's wonderful. Well, and I know they're really lucky to have you because you're, you're able to take all these these skills that you have and this life experience that you have with these different grades and stuff and, and really apply it and bring it into the art classroom, right? So it's more than just art it is, over in Lissa's class, right? It is more than just <laughs> art, absolutely. I, I feel like I teach more social skills in art than I teach of anything else, even more than I teach art. Yeah. Because children's, you know, they talk and they they get creative and they're they're relaxed and so then things just fly out of their mouth and and I'm able to correct things and help them you know realize no maybe that you know I don't think that's what you meant when you said that the kind of thing um, and you know we have lots of discussions I mean art is a great way to have discussions about some some pretty hard stuff and then when we learn about famous artists we can actually talk about their life and struggles which also is a great way for discussions so we learn a lot of social skills and interpersonal skills um in my classroom well good stuff well well we wish you the best for the 2019 2020 which is kind of weird to say it is weird uh school year um so speaking of discussions what's being discussed in the uh, teacher's lounge as we kick off the school year well, some teachers in Florida have the ability to get a $15,000 pay raise um, coming up. If they, this is interesting too, they have to be proven to be a highly effective teacher, which, you know, raises an eyebrow because you're like, well, like, who do decides you know? that? How right. do you, yeah. So, and my first question was, wait a minute, where is this money coming from? Because, in my state, you know, it's such a struggle to get pay raises. So you're 15, saying... 15000 is a lot. 15000 like, yeah. So it, the money is coming from a $16 million federal grant um, that Florida receives annually to help boost achievement in their failing districts. Okay. So these are districts that score um, a D or an F in achievement, um, which 172 schools in Florida have earned a D or an F rating. So... Now, there's they're they're not just you know we've heard I know of and I know we've spoken of critical need areas where they will pay teachers to, or they'll forgive their student loan debt right. and stuff to go teach in these areas, but Florida's saying nope, no thanks. We, we only want. want the best of the best to come I into like these like and that. to turn these schools around. So they're they're kind of making a statement that, which I do like. I will say this: they're making a statement that says. The best way to impact students is with highly effective teachers. Like, you know, it's not enticing more people into the field and giving them all kinds of breaks to just say, are you sure? Don't you want to come teach here because we're giving you all these breaks? What if those people aren't highly effective? What if they're not really good at their job? They're just more people that are doing well, a job and, that they shouldn't be doing. Let me say this. Like, I don't care who you are, if you're the smartest person in the world, whatever, Anytime it's your first couple years of doing something, you're you're still learning. You're not very good at it yet. That's true. And that's okay because you're learning. Right. So, and yeah. And of course, that's when some people decide to turn and walk away from education. And I understand that we need more programs that help bridge that gap for the new teachers to help them stick with it because they may be wonderful at it. They're just having a tough start because it is tough. It is tough. But anyway, I do think this is interesting. Um, this, you know, I guess you would call it merit pay, yeah, um, which is such a sticky little conversation right, it, among districts across the nation. I mean, we when we talk about merit pay at my school, I always, 
I just kind of slink out of the conversation because I'm the art teacher. But this is so, so I, when I always sometimes merit pays attached to like how your students are performing, right? Oh, she's a good teacher. Their students are doing well. Well, maybe they got a good crop of students, and that's why they look like they're doing well. I don't know. But this is a little different. This is based off of evaluations, right? No, this no? is actually based off of student performance on testing. Okay. So that is so when usually when a teacher is evaluated. There are observations that are done by administrators. There, of course, is student achievement. And so there's more of a whole look. But this is not. This is actually, um, Florida has a model called the value-added model, which they call the VAM or the Mm -hmm. VAM. Um, And it rates teachers um, based on student achievement on test scores. But it also kind of digs in a little deeper, and it will look at things that were out of the teacher's control. Okay. So maybe um, their classroom had a lot of students that, you know, scored low, but they also have a ruling. I wish we had a Florida teacher like on right now. So it could be like, hey, how do you feel about Yeah. Well, I mean, it probably. Does it feel fair? Well, I will say this. Any teacher in the nation, when it comes up with merit pay, there's you're going to find teachers that say this isn't fair. But um, Florida says, you know, that they're also this this value-added model, it takes out, like, student absences and things like that. Like, mm-hmm. so that doesn't count against the teacher because they can't control that. You know, uh, students that are maybe have English as a second language, things like that are taken into account to where you can't just say, well, she had a class that had, you know, she... Yeah, 10 ESL students. Right. Yeah. So so it does weed that stuff out, which does make it a little more fair. Yeah. But anyway, they have to score. Uh, you can score on this VAM. You can score highly effective. Effective, needs improvement, and I can't remember the last one, but anyway, last. <laughs> but right. anyway, um, you have to score highly effective or, fe- or effective for three years to qualify for okay. these. This grant. So, so who would that be? How many teachers in Florida yeah, would be highly effective? What do you uh, do think? You, you have numbers. I do have me. the okay. numbers. What do you think? Well, the I mean, percentage? first off, I get. Yeah, first off, can you like? Are we talking percentage then? Like how many? We're talking percentage, okay, and then okay. remember, they have to they have to have it three three years, years in a row. So yeah. basically, I would say you're. I mean, that's tough. I would say you're pulling from between five to ten percent of the teachers in the school. It is eighteen percent. Okay, and then effective also counts. So. How I mean, how many you think are effective? All right, wait. What was the the first one? Was what highly highly effective? effective. Okay, the effective eighteen. I would say it probably bumps the number up to thirty five. Okay, fifty four. Okay, are effective. Okay, so basically, you're looking at these eighteen and fifty four percent teachers have an opportunity to move to one of one hundred and seventy two schools that scored a D or an F, and help reshape the school. Right. But when you have to have scored highly effective for three years in a row, you probably weren't a brand new teacher. So you could probably guess that these teachers have families. Maybe have been, yeah, in the field five to six years and they are established in their community. And so to get them to up and move to a whole nother community that already is a probably uh, looks very different than the community they are living in right. for $15,000 raise would be tough because you would probably be expecting their husband to be able to move, their children to be able to well, move, where are their children going to go to let's school? Take, 
like Miami, for example, and let's just say there's a, a failing school in Miami. There may yes. not be. Um, but uh, so there was. And then you may live in the suburb of Miami. Right. And, and, drive in. and you drive in. So, yes. I mean, I think those opportunities oh, yeah. probably exist. Absolutely. Yeah. There's people that are within driving distance that would say, yep, I'll do that. Um, I mean, we have that with, you know, teachers that live on a state line and they drive over a state line for more pay at a neighboring state. So, so yeah, I think, I mean, I just think, Fifteen thousand is a lot. Again, like that would get me fired it's, up. It's a lot. It is, and, yeah. and 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 I mean, good for them. We need to be hearing more stories about people giving teachers more money because that's where it's at, and I, that's the one thing I like about this story is that it is rewarding effective you know, t- people that are there for the right reasons. Yeah, you know, like well, I'm an outsider to to Florida, but I feel like we talked about another what seemed to make sense idea in Florida, maybe like, I don't know, somewhere within the past 10 episodes. And I can't even remember what that was, but, (laughs) but I remember it. And I just know that like Florida just had like a really partisan election, right? Like it was like, they were counting votes at the end, but I mean, it kind of seems to to make sense. I mean, I guess you kind of have to give the the governor a little applause, you know, at least trying something new here, a different direction of doing things. And I know it's federal money at the end of the day, but still you got to get the grant. Um, and, and really my story today is also about Florida public schools because they are now going to require that they provide mental health education for students. And, uh, we talked about this about a year ago because Virginia also had signed on for doing this. And I think the state of New York does as well. And those are really the only three that I know of in the country that are saying like, we are requiring a certain amount of hours of mental health education, probably going to be administered through your typical health class. Um, but this is something that has to happen. And, and each state is kind of doing it differently, but they're doing it. And um, in Florida, they want to do it for students between um, sixth and twelfth grade, and it's at least five hours, which isn't a ton, but at least five hours of mental health instruction. Thoughts? Do it. Do it. Yes, um, we need more and more and more of it. I think you can just watch the news on any given day and see that you know that it's just. It's. I think it's been neglected for a long time. I think it's been hush hush yeah, for a long time. A, Nobody a wants to talk about it, and it's a huge part of every family. Every family within their whole tree, that is, you know, yeah, across I would say siblings has somebody and aunts in their and family. uncles. Everybody has somebody affected yeah. by it. So we cannot continue to act like it doesn't exist. It's not. It's not a black eye. It's. It's a bobo. It needs help. You know, like, that's what I think. Right. I mean, and when you have successful people like um, Kate Spade or or Anthony Bourdain or Robin Williams, who um, I know, tough to even, like, remember all those, who have committed suicide, you, it's just a reminder that that this must be an illness. Like, you know, you think these people have uh, everything at their fingertips, but still something's plaguing them. And it's something that needs to be discussed. Now, I think kind of what might be up for the debate is at what age you start doing this. Um, and I think New York is actually requiring the instruction. They start in kindergarten and it's through 12th grade. And I don't know what that looks like. Um, Virginia is just um, requires it in ninth and 10th grade. And then now Florida is going to be again, six through 12. So like what's right. I don't work with kids enough to know, like what do you tell a kindergartner or a first grader or a second grader, but maybe you might have an idea. Like, I don't know what, what type of discussions might you be able to have in class about mental health with somebody so young? Well, when they're young, it's not so much about, we are talking about mental health today. Right. It's more about uh, sharing feelings, safe, you know, safe adults to talk to, yeah. um, things like that. It's more about, you know, having 
what the weight of words is and being careful with what you say to others because that can really cause some damage and and then if if you are hurting you know you have to talk about it and um, so it starts with those things in the younger grades and then it, you know it, it does increasingly get a little more serious um, but it, I mean and, you know also I think you need Family education. Um, a lot of times when there is a suicide uh, that impacts a community, like a child that is at a high school or a middle school, usually the community will offer, as part of some of their resources, they'll offer a kind of a, a town hall kind of setting where you right. can come and there's some experts in that field that that educate parents on how to notice signs and how to safeguard against things that you think would never happen in your family. And, um, you know, because sometimes uh, part of the scare is with middle schoolers and high schoolers are so impulsive, you know, what they're feeling and thinking is so, they just do not think that it will ever be different. You know, even if it's something that is not really based on depression. It might be something where something embarrassing, like a photo that they sent to a boyfriend and then he sent, a, and, you know, bad that he shared that nude photo with other right. boys. It, and it, then this what girl, feels like the end of the world. Right. So this yeah. girl feels like there's no way to recover from this. So um, I think there are, there's lots of things that just even families that don't feel like they really have mental illness in their family, but they still can learn a lot about safeguarding their home um, and how to communicate with their children through changing phases of life would be a huge help. um, Because, I mean, statistically, you do start to see a lot of mental illness flags raising in the middle school and high school um, ages. And some of that, I think, is because those children do not feel like they have anyone that they can talk to. And that is within their own home. Right. Well, uh, again, you know, I know it's Florida, Florida, Florida uh, for this uh, episode, but uh, kudos to them. I think it's it's something that uh, needs to be adopted across the country. So uh, are you ready for the uh, bright idea? Yes. Our guest in today's Brad Idea segment is a California principal calling for grading reform. Eric Sable is a 21-year public educator and the principal of Hall Middle School in Northern California. Eric, welcome to Class Dismissed. Really appreciate being here. Thank you. I'm excited that you're here because you really hold no punches back when it comes to your opinion about this the grading scale. And we're, we're basically talking about A to F, 0 to 100 point scale. Um, I, you almost seem to have hatred for it. Am I overstating it? Well, let's see. Um, I uh, let's just say that um, after all my time as a student, um, and then twenty plus years in secondary education, sixteen in high school, five now in middle school, um, I can say uh, beyond uh, personal opinion um, that if what we want uh, in schools is to create a culture centered on learning and growth. Um, then a feedback model that's based on points and percentages isn't the most effective route. Um, It does provide feedback, um, but the problem with letter grades um, is that it combines every aspect of what a student does, both academically and behaviorally, mixes it all together in a big cauldron, and then spits out a percentage. So what we get is information that's 
not very nuanced. Um, and so um, I feel very strongly, along with a growing network of educators, um, that this system of uh, ranking, really, which uh, started in 1897, is outdated. Um, and we have better solutions. I originally came across your work. You were featured in um, Education Week, and, and I think the title of your article was Three Ways School Leaders Can Undo Grading Inequities. And and I got to hand it to you, you were way more um, diplomatic than I was about the uh, your opinion on it. But um, you, you actually go into your article where you um, point to, I guess, is it three major issues? And, and if we can, I'd like to kind of go through those, like what, what your beef is with the grading system. And, and for starters, I think you pointed out that it's over 100 years old. But then you talk about a few things like grade inflation. Can you tell me about that? Absolutely. So again, something that um, has been well documented, um, both anecdotally, I mean, I know that um, I and my local community uh, have been talking about grade inflation for at least the last 15 years, which is the bulk of my career. Um, But also, too, it's been well documented, which I cite in the article. in 1940, 15% of grades at private colleges and universities fell within the A range. And in 2008, that number was uh, almost 45%. Um, That's from the book, Excellent Sheep. Um, And so, you know, look, I'm not saying that uh, that is the the one telltale sign, but I do think that um, it is a symptom of a bigger problem. Um, What any type of feedback mechanism Um, needs to have in uh, an organization, um, whether it be a school, a district, or um, bigger picture education as a whole, um, is reliability. And the problem with A through F grading is that classroom to classroom, school to school, there is a wide range of practices. Um, The homework counts for 15% over here, over there it counts for 20%. Um, tests and quizzes count for this amount. Behavior, behaviors and, and other comportments count for this. Um, the, the mixes are all different. Um, the ways in which um, different individual educators um, weight something or not. Um, all these things now are in question, thankfully. And I think that uh, there's um, evidence of higher education taking note, even um, looking more suspiciously at these uh, weighted grades, for example, grades. Sorry, for example, in honors courses in high school, um, whereby if you take, for example, honor Spanish, um, that counts for a little bit more on the grading scale than "quote unquote" normal Spanish. But what if a school only offers honors? What if honors is the new normal? There's just too much uh, subjectivity. There's too much room to sort of. Uh, kind of mess with the system to engineer better outcomes. And so this is just something that, again, in a points numbers-based system is highly problematic. And then, again, ultimately, when a student is reduced down to a GPA, um, you really are uh, sort of flattening who that individual is as a learner, as a person. Well, and which kind of leads me to, I think, your second point, which is you feel like there's a false belief that if a student scores poorly, it's going to turn around and motivate that student. And you say that's not really the case, right? Well, this is, this is a huge idea, the nature of motivation. And I think that uh, much smarter people than I am, Alfie Cohn, Daniel Pink, um, have done a lot of work on the nature of motivation and 
how actually rewards aren't uh, a very viable means by which we get people motivated. Um, certainly, grades uh, do motivate some students. Um, it is true that there are those that pursue um, the best grade possible. And in doing so, we, we can assume um, that they are doing some learning there. Um, but, but, but we should also be worried about um, what it is they're motivated to do, because if what they're motivated to do is get the grade, um, then now all of a sudden the learning experience is about meeting certain expectations um, or certain sets of criteria that are going to engineer that fixed outcome rather than uh, potentially experiencing a deeper level of learning, taking risks, taking more challenging classes that will push you, um, that could, in, in theory, uh, negatively affect your GPA. So, so we could say, sure, some students are motivated to get high grades, um, but we should definitely question that. Um, but also, too, um, there's plenty of research that shows that actually um, grades demotivate students. First of all, there's plenty of students that might get a C plus B minus on an assessment. Given the opportunity to redo the assessment uh, for a higher score, um, there's a number of students that will pass on that. They're they're not necessarily interested in um, in looking to to get a better grade. And then two, um, and this I quote in the article as well. There's no research that supports the idea. This is quoting, no research that supports the idea that low grades prompt students to try harder. More often, low grades prompt students to withdraw from learning to protect their self-images. Many students regard the low grade as irrelevant or meaningless. Um, others may blame themselves for the low grade, but feel helpless to improve. That's from a 1992 study. So, so there's the, this idea of correlating grades with motivation is something that I think after 120 plus years is understandable. That's been the language of learning. And what we are arguing, again, in a growing network of schools um, that are looking to implement um, more standards or competency-based feedback models, we want our students to be motivated to push their learning, but we don't want them to be motivated by some number or some shiny letter um, that represent success. Well, okay, so let's kind of try to dive into solutions. And I know you touched on on a few uh, as you've been talking, but let's try to break this down because I think you you start off with this um, rubric, the habits of learning rubric. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah, it, and that's called something. I mean, this could there's a habits of work. It, I've seen it called. Um, you know, I've, there's all kinds of different names for it, but essentially what it boils down to are um, the uh, sort of life skills. Sometimes they're called 21st century skills, but thankfully, I think we've started to move away from that mm -hmm. uh, that that terminology. And these are just the life skills um, that we know that our students need to have. And there's all kinds of different um, great examples of these, and I provide um, links to those resources in the article itself. Um, in ours, um, we look at um, these are the different um, skills that we're looking to foster alongside um, content-specific academic knowledge. So these are um, initiative and ownership of learning, innovation, adaptability, critical analysis, 
cross-cultural communication and teamwork. And so um, these, these are the skills that I would argue are far more critical uh, than any one specific piece of academic content. Um, in fact, many of these uh, uh, different skills you can see on the World Economic Forum every year, they, they sort of do their projection on the top skills needed in the job market of 2020, et cetera. And a lot of these um, different skills uh, appear um, in their top 10. So these are cross-cutting. They go across all forms of uh, academic disciplines, all forms of, uh, of, of work, and, 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 and um, the different ways that we live our lives. Um, and we want to give our students the tools to be able to reflect on these different habits um, so that they can improve upon them. And so we've developed a rubric, which is, again, available um, for anyone to see. Um, and there are many like it um, that I list as well. And this helps uh, students really um, see how to progress in these different um, uh, areas. And also, too, um, moving into this school year, um, alongside the feedback on academic content, um, teachers and students are going to um, be looking at their performance in these uh, different skills, these habits of learning, and those are going to form a part of our report card as well. And so do you feel like your teachers are going to be able to objectively fill out that rubric? I mean, is it is or is there some subjectivity that takes place there? Oh, absolutely. I think that it, so I, the great question, first of all, because one of the first critiques that I've heard about moving away from A through F grades is that, well, now nothing's going to be objective anymore. As if A through F grading were objective. Right. <laughs> because right. as I talked about five minutes ago, um, there are all kinds of different ways that teachers approach A through F grading, even at the same school, which is proof positive that um, there isn't a high degree of viability and objectivity to that system. So moving on to um, this model of looking at um, proficiency-based feedback, whether it's in academics or in these life skills. Yes, absolutely. There's um, no way to escape some degree of subjectivity, but here's, here's what we're going to do with this habits of learning is we're going to have the students grade themselves first. They're going to be the ones who every trimester, which is how our year is organized, um, they're going to um, write a holistic reflection on their performance, both in academics and also in these habits of learning. Um, the teacher then is going to have the opportunity to look at their self-evaluation, balance that against evidence they have, and then um, they'll come to uh, agreement. Um, hopefully in most cases, about the student score um, in the areas of focus for that <clears throat> trimester. So um, what's key is this, is that the teacher is a content expert, and over the course of a school year, they ideally are developing great relationships with their students. They know where they're at in their learning and how to help them move forward and also how to support them when they're struggling. Um, but a teacher doesn't know everything. And so this is an incredible opportunity to um, implicate the student much more in the evaluation of their own learning, which again, 
um, across the board uh, is something that A through F models don't allow for. A, a student gets a grade. A teacher gives them a grade. So it's a very passive experience in that respect. So um, we're really excited about this opportunity to get our students to really actively participate in the evaluation of where they are with these different dimensions. You, you say that you should give standards-based grades and then convert that into a letter grade, though, in the article? Is that, is that what you're saying, like you're going to practice at your school as well? So, so a terrific question. And so here's, first of all, for us here at Hall Middle School, um, just a little bit north of San Francisco, um, we're really fortunate that we've been able to partner um, with other local schools, um, including Ross School, which is a local uh, K-8, um, Gateway Middle School, um, which is a public charter in San Francisco, also King Middle School, which is in Berkeley, California, where I'm from originally. Um, and those are middle schools that have done away with letter grades. In fact, King Middle School in Berkeley, I'm proud to say, um, started that process a decade ago. Mm. And so, <clears throat> um, so we in the middle school level have a higher degree of freedom to let go of letter grades because we're not reporting them to higher education. Um, so I wrote the Ed Week article um, through the lens of really trying to talk to high school educators because it's understood that right now um, the bigger construct uh, in higher education is expecting a GPA vis-a-vis the 100-point scale, the A through F model. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's easy for me at a middle school level to say, hey, I can take away A through F and that doesn't adversely affect my students. Um, but for high school educators, it's understood um, that they're still expected to generate A through F. And I give an example of a local high school where coincidentally I used to work um, that is doing standards-based grading um, in their program. Um, but then after they do that standards-based feedback, they do convert that feedback to a letter grade. Um, and so I think that that's, that's one important early step that high schools can take. Rather than uh, take the argument that, well, it's impossible, higher ed will never change. There's no, I, I agree with this philosophically, but there's no way practically to implement it. What I wanted to do is actually prove that it is possible and practical um, to implement. And there's examples happening, uh, not just here, but other places around the country. As we started the interview, you kind of mentioned that there are other people who are out there that, you know, have the same belief system. But I mean, are you guys on an island or do you feel like, no, this is really starting to spread throughout the country? How do you feel the penetration is with this idea of just, you know, reforming school and getting rid of the grading scale? I, I feel both ways. Um, I feel sometimes a, a bit isolated. Um, but when I reach out to that network, um, in fact, uh, there's another local middle school, Del Mar Middle, um, which is just a, a couple towns over. Um, both of us feed into the same high school. Um, they're on the exact same pathway as we are um, looking to um, uh, retire A through F, if you will. Um, starting this school year, replaced with standards-based grades. Um, I think that it, the, the awareness um, from the research has 
gone back um, into the 1990s, 1980s. Um, I think in terms of implementation, and this happens a lot in the world, um, it takes a lot more time, especially for something as big as public education. And so, um, so mostly what I feel is uh, a high degree of optimism um, because the focus is on the students. The focus is on creating a means by which we can understand their learning in a more nuanced way to provide more information on how they're doing specific to standards, both academic and in terms of those life skills. Um, it is very different from what we, most of us at least experienced as students, different from what most parents have experienced as students. Um, and certainly I've received a, a you know, a, a fair amount of questions and some criticism about um, this uh, decision that we've taken collectively as a staff. Um, but I've also um, received all kinds of uh, positive comments and excitement and optimism from parents um, and community members about this shift. In fact, there's a lot of them that wish that their now high school age kid could have experienced this, that wish that we had done this years ago. So I think that um, like with anything pertinent to human beings, we have to experience it to really understand it and to believe in it. Um, and that goes for us here too, as a team uh, moving into this August, um, this will be the first time ever this school um, has implemented this type of feedback on student learning. Um, as a whole. And so that's going to be a time that's going to be filled with tremendous opportunity and excitement, but also the normal challenges um, and two steps forward, one step back of any major change effort. Yeah, I know it's it's an ambitious undertaking and you're somewhat leading the charge on it, but, but you have not shied away from uh, big movements like this in the past. I know that you are, is it the co-founder of Global School Play Day? So if anybody's heard of that, like that's that was a pretty big accomplishment, right? Well, you know, that was, uh, I'm, I'm one of a team. Um, the, the original team um, uh, was uh, about six of us. Um, and uh, along with um, brothers Scott Bedley and Tim Bedley, who coincidentally also have a, a really incredible podcast called Bedley Brothers, um, they're they're awesome. Um, add that to uh, your podcast playlist. Um, uh, we heard about the research and uh, TED Talk uh, from Dr. Peter Gray. Um, and this was back in the winter of uh, 2014. And he um, is a psychologist and has done all kinds of research on the adverse effects, the adverse psychological, emotional, physical effects um, that the lack of uh, free unstructured play has had on children, um, including um, impacted educational outcomes. And so um, Scott and Tim, um, after we kind of started talking about this, um, they, they came up with this idea like, well, why don't we just dedicate a day um, out of the 180 school days in the year um, to unstructured play? You know, I don't know. Let's just let's just throw it out there on Twitter and see what happens. And so we had about a month where we just pushed out some messages on Twitter, Facebook. Um, and that first February, we anticipated, hey, maybe a thousand kids will sign up, maybe two if we're lucky. And it was over 65,000 students. Wow. 
that participated in that first February of 2015. Now, this past February was our fifth run of Global School Play Day. And we went over uh, the half million mark. And that was in 72 countries, six continents. So far, we haven't got Antarctica. So you, if you have any contacts down there, yeah, no, we've, I, got, to, we've got to figure that one out. They're not but, kids um, if I did. So the thing that's been really exciting about this, first of all, Global School Play Day, and you can find out uh, more information on globalschoolplayday.com. It, this is completely free of charge, signing up. It comes with no strings attached at all. Um, I think most of uh, what we've been able to generate um, in terms of awareness has been through social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, some um, press coverage, some um, coverage in uh, different podcasts, um, including uh, Cult of Pedagogy um, from Jennifer Gonzalez that was uh, mm-hmm. uh, this past January. And um, But this this is really exciting because this has everything to do with learning. Um, The role of play in terms of the human organism is essential to how we experience the world and play. And school shouldn't be antithetical to that. It shouldn't be um, something different um, from how we most naturally learn. Um, And the two don't have to fight against each other. Um, we don't have to see play as some reward for good behavior. Um, and school shouldn't be seen as this doldrums where we just sit in rows and kind of get through it. So, um, and play isn't only good for kids, it's also uh, great for adults. So anyway, I hope that uh, your listeners will will um, do a little bit of research on Global School Play Day and consider uh, getting their classrooms or schools signed up if they're parents in a, in a community um, reach out to teachers, principals, um, and uh, and see if they uh, are interested in joining this movement. Yeah, and we'd love to have you uh, back on the show sometime in January to uh, just kind of remind people that it's it's coming down the pipe in uh, February. So, uh, absolutely. Well, um, myself, uh, Scott, and Tim, and uh, other members of the leadership team would love to uh, talk with you more about it to start off 2020. All right. Well, Eric uh, Sable, are you ready for our pop quiz? Ready isn't quite the right term, but I'm here, I'm present, and uh, I'm ready to engage. All right. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Oh, wow. I'm going to get in so much trouble. Um, I would say theater. Um, I think theater is something absolutely everyone should do. And it's not something uh, that's that's really easily accessible, just kind of out and about. Um, it brings people together, um, it, working dynamically, and then having to perform that out um, to uh, an audience, big or small. Um, I don't care if, if somebody only does it once, but I think that um, I think theater is uh, would be the one. What uh, are what are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Uh, how to relax, um, how to relax, how to um, find our center um, and and be at peace in the moment. What does every child deserve? Every child deserves love. Uh, they deserve um, to know that they're loved uh, and that they are unique and of uh, incalculable value. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Thank you.
the biggest challenge for today's educators um, is to uh, have the time and space um, to be together in collaborative fashion to do their best work and also to to have the resources both at school and in their personal lives um, to uh, live normal um, relatively stress-free lives um, but they don't get paid enough to to do that too many of them have to drive too far to get to where they work and then once they get to school um, they don't have enough time and space to be connected with their colleagues. What's the best gift to give an educator? Oh, best gift to give an educator um, is after giving them a raise is to write them a heartfelt note um, to talk with them specifically about the impact that they had on you, your child, your friend's child, uh, your community um, to know that their daily efforts are valued um, and that people are, are seeing um, and recognizing that effort. Uh, our next question will give you an opportunity to do just that. Which teacher changed your life? Oh, oh my gosh. Um, that's what an amazing question. Um, Beyond my mom, um, who uh, was a longtime high school and junior college teacher, um, I would say my Spanish teacher um, in high school, who, who sadly has since passed away, Señor Eschrumpio, as we called him, um, Donald Shrump. Yes, that was his <laughs> name, Donald Shrump, wow. S-C-H. Wow. Um, he, he's the reason that I became a Spanish teacher. I remember the very first day of high school, um, very first day of freshman year, uh, these many decades later, um, his energy, his passion, um, his humor. Uh, that, that's what um, I hoped to impart uh, to my classes uh, when I taught um, for the 10 years that I taught. So um, I would say that for sure he was the one that um, woke me up to those possibilities. And last question, pen or pencil? <laughs> pencil we pencil always, absolutely we always try to end with a bang here uh eric uh sable again we appreciate all the great work you're doing uh with both um global school play day and um of course you kind of um speaking up i mean it's hard for a principal to get out there and say our grading system is broken and we need reform you know so kudos to you and last thing i, I will say i do appreciate that thought is I've had support from two superintendents from a board of trustees that's progressive forward thinking uh, from this incredible teaching faculty um, who voted overwhelmingly to move us forward into this work. Therefore, we're here doing it. It wasn't by decree um, from me. So um, I'm just so proud of being a part of it. But it's because of the network of support from leadership being exerted from many different people that it's possible. All right. Thank you again, Eric. Thank you very much. It's been a great conversation and we look forward to reconnecting uh, in January. 
That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you, so if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button, and we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash classdismissedpodcast or on Twitter. Just search for us by typing in Class Dismiss. On behalf of Russ with School Status and Lissa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ward to go and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.